Morning, Antioch. Great to see you guys. My name's Pete, and I'm one of the pastors here, and so excited to be together to dive into the season of Advent this morning. So if you've got a Bible, you can go to the book of Philippians chapter 2, where Medell just read for us, and that'll be our text for the morning. Um, I wanted to just throw out a couple either reminders or announcements. I can't remember which things we've already communicated, but um, throughout the next several weeks, we'll be going through this series called The Incarnate Deity, which I'll talk more about in a minute. Uh, Two weeks from today, on December 16th, we've got a really special guest speaker coming uh, to share with us that day, and her name is Jill Briscoe. Uh, and many of you will recognize her from being a, <clears throat> a world-famous Bible teacher for many, many years now, originally from the UK, now in the Midwest, and uh, she's coming to share with us the week before Christmas, um, and so you're not going to miss her. It's going to be really fun. And then uh, we have Christmas Eve services on the 24th. It'll just be here at 5 o'clock. Five sound good to everybody? Let's do Five. <laughs> So uh, we'll do, it'll be just like a one-hour service here with the whole family together, and I uh, want to encourage you to even think about if there's a friend or a coworker or a neighbor that you would want to extend that invitation to. It'll be a really beautiful night celebrating uh, Christmas Eve together and something that we think uh, your friends and neighbors uh, would really appreciate an invitation to. So um, think about that. And then finally, on the last Sunday of the year, which is the 30th, we are going to be having what we're calling a Celebration Sunday. And if you don't know, Antioch has partnered over the last several months with two other fellowships. One is Dios Es Amor, which is a Latino fellowship uh, that we share our building with across the street, and then also a Korean fellowship called Milal, and uh, they meet upstairs over there while we're in here. And so our three churches have kind of formed this really unlikely but beautiful uh, relationship. And so on that morning, uh, December 30th, all three churches will be here together for a celebration Sunday. And we're going to have a multilingual, multi-ethnic, multicultural service that morning with uh, music and testimonies and prayers from all, different, all of the three different congregations. So it uh, should be a really fun time. It's the first time we've done anything like this, um, but we're so excited to welcome uh, these other two churches and, and to host a celebration at the end of the year. So just wanted to put those things uh, on your radar. Are as uh, we get closer uh, to Christmas. So, um, as we dive into Advent, uh, like Evan mentioned earlier, Advent's a word that simply means arrival or coming. And it's a time where followers of Jesus for many years have set aside the four weeks leading up to Christmas to enter into the story of the people of God. And so, it's a time where we learn to long for God's presence. It's a time where we join with ancient Israel in anticipating God's arrival in the world. And we mean that both in the biggest sense, as Israel awaited their Messiah King, and also as we now await the return of our king, which Rick spoke on last week, um, but also in the everyday stuff of life. I know so many of us have these places in our lives, even this morning, where we're longing for God to show up. Places where we wish so badly that God would make himself known, that God would intervene, that God would have mercy, that God would break into our world. Places of longing, places of brokenness. And that's what Advent is about, is acknowledging that longing 
Acknowledging that hunger and thirst for God's presence and power and kingdom to break into our world as it is in heaven. And so as we enter into this season together, we join with the global historic Church of Christ in a season of longing, anticipating, waiting, and hoping in God's coming. And so incarnate deity you may recognize as being a a line from the Advent hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And it's fascinating to me every time we get this, this time of year Uh, You walk into a coffee shop or a store or whatever, and you hear the Christmas music playing uh, over the system. And one minute, um, you're in Starbucks or whatever, and they're playing these, you know, epic, beautiful theological songs that say, Veiled in Flesh, the Godhead See, Hail the Incarnate Deity, Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel standing in line for your latte. And then the next minute, it's a song about a flying deer, right? And somehow it gets a little confusing. So Advent is about not letting God get lost in the mix, not letting Jesus be an afterthought as we enter into this crazy season, not wanting him just to be something that we tag on to all of the festivities and activities uh, to help us feel better, but we together, four weeks out, start by recognizing Christ at the center of our lives, the center of our community, and the center of the universe. And so we're going to start by looking at the scandal of the incarnation. We looked at the incarnation several weeks ago as we were walking through the Apostles' Creed. And it simply has to do with the idea that Christians have always believed that the baby who was born to the Virgin Mary in that manger so many years ago was the second person of the Trinity. That it was God the Son who broke into human history in the form of a human. And so this doctrine of incarnation, and it's, it, this is the doctrine called incarnation, and it's simply an outrageous claim to make. In fact, some of the other Western faiths, Judaism, Islam, and those like that, have such a hard time uh, reconciling the idea that the great, powerful, almighty creator of the heavens and earth would do something so inappropriate as to become a human. And so for many of us, this idea that God was born to us in a manger is something we've known and believed and celebrated for many years, but we lose the scandalous nature of the incarnation. Just how mind-blowing, how audacious it is to claim that this is the kind of God we have, a God who would lower himself into uh, his creation. And so the word incarnation comes... uh, from two Latin words. The first, in, meaning in. Uh, The second, (laughs) carne, meaning meat. If you're a Spanish speaker, you'll recognize chili con carne, right? Carne asada, a carnivore, one who eats meat. A carnival, interesting enough, used to be a meat festival. Uh, That sounds better to me than most of them now, but that's how it started. Um, an incarnate deity, an incarnate God would be a God, and this sounds sketchy, who becomes a piece of meat. A God who wraps himself in flesh. A God who removes himself 
from the splendor and the glory of his heavenly place and enters in to human history. And not just as a human, but as a baby, helpless, vulnerable, needy. In John's gospel, the nativity story is told in beautiful theological language. John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So the Bible teaches that the great, infinite, powerful creator of the universe has become human. And this is a teaching that's utterly unique to Christianity. There are other religions that claim that humans can work their way up to become gods. But only the Christian gospel holds to a story of a God who lowers himself to become human. And again, not just any human, but a baby. Frederick Buchner says it like this, the incarnation is a kind of vast joke whereby the creator of the ends of the earth comes among us in diapers. And until we too have, have, been taken, by the idea, have taken the idea of God-man seriously enough to be scandalized by it, we have not taken it as seriously as it demands to be taken. God becomes a human, a real human. Not just God in a human costume, not just playing human, but as real as a human as you and me. And this is the idea that so many of us have gotten used to, but as Buchner says, we need to be scandalized by it if we're taking it seriously. Once, many years ago, when I was a young church planter, I was preaching a sermon on this passage and on this topic, and I entitled it, entitled it Christmas, The Day God Pooped His Pants. <laughs> Meaning, that's what babies do, right? And if you're offended by that, then that's the point. It should be an offensive, scandalizing, like inappropriate concept to speak the great God of the universe that would do something so, so low, right? But why does he do it? If we continue on in 1 John, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. And so there's many answers to the question of why incarnation? Why did God come to us in Jesus? But the one we're gonna focus on this morning and throughout the course of this Advent series is that center to understanding the incarnation is getting that God comes in the form of a human with the purpose of revealing to humanity who God is and what God is like. God reveals himself to us through the incarnation. So all the questions that we have and that humans have had for thousands of years about the supernatural, about cre the creator, about the center of the universe, if there's a God, who is that God and what is that God like? And God says, I'm going to show you. I'm going to unveil myself to you. I'm going to reveal who I am and what I'm like to you through becoming human and living among you. And so that's just why John says that in Jesus, we've seen the glory 
of God. We see the clearest picture we could ever have, clearer than the natural revelation, even clearer than the scriptures themselves, is the person of Jesus. When we look at Christ, we see that is what God is like. And so the question for our series is, what does God reveal about his character through the act of incarnation? What kind of God would lower himself, empty himself, demote himself to become part of his creation? And how do that, does that picture of God shape the way that we worship and relate to him? And how does it shape the way that we live as his people in the world, especially as we enter into this season of Christmas? And so Dale Bruner, the theologian, says it like this, that Christ is the human face of God. Jesus is the autobiography of God. In Christ, God was spelling himself out, expressing himself. Jesus was the audible, visible word who expressed the heart of the inaudible, invisible God. I just love that. Our longing to know God, to commune with God, to live in relationship with God is mediated by the gift of God himself in the person of Christ. And so the picture that we are to have of God is not an old man with a white beard on a cloud or just some cosmic mystic force in the universe, but when we think of God, we are to think of Jesus and celebrate in the reality that because of the incarnation, it's now been revealed to us that we have a Christ-like God. God is like Jesus which is incredibly good news as we grow to study and appreciate and love the heart, the person, the mind, the vision of Christ. And so you could say it this way, that what audible words are to inaudible thoughts, the visible Jesus is to the invisible God. Which is why at one point Jesus speaks to his disciples who have questions about what God is like, and Jesus says to them, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's simply inviting us to set our eyes upon him. And in this specific conversation, a God who would make himself flesh, a God who would make himself into a baby, what kind of God would do that? The first thing I want to look at this morning back in Philippians, in verse 8, that being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Okay, so we get this picture that in the incarnation, Jesus sets aside his equality with God. The theological term for this is kenosis. It's an idea of self-emptying. He takes his supernatural power, his supernatural place at the center of the universe, and he rids himself of those things, disadvantages himself for the sake of becoming who he wants to save. So what kind of God would lower himself to humanity? The first thing I would say is that it's a God who's self-limiting. In Jesus, we see a picture of a self-limiting God. He lowers himself. He demotes himself. 
he empties himself and limits himself for the sake of love. See, the Israelites had been waiting for hundreds of years for the promised Messiah King to show up. But they were expecting, as we've talked about many times, a political king, a king that would actually enter into their political power structures and run for office and get the vote and win the election and ascend to the throne and bring freedom to this oppressed people. That's the picture that they had, that when God came as a king, it would be incredibly clear and it would be utilizing the exact same power structures that were already in place, but instead Jesus shows up as the unwanted child of an unwed teenage mother. Instead of being born in a palace and having his birth celebrated all across the kingdom as the next king, he's born in a barn, in obscurity, and in poverty. There's no celebrity sightings at the hospital. No gossip magazines there to play it up. It's just his young, poor mom and dad and a bunch of dirty shepherds. This is not what anyone was expecting when God showed up in the world. This was not the picture that God's people had of how God would come and be their liberating king and Messiah. And in fact, the humility of Christ was so unexpected that many of the people who had been eagerly awaiting God's advent didn't recognize God at all when he finally showed up. Further in John 1, he says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was own, but his own did not receive him. Because nobody expects a humble God. They were expecting a strong, powerful, royal, triumphant, glorious arrival. And instead, God sneaks in the back door. Instead of a top-down, amazing spectacle comes in from the very bottom of the human structures and systems of the day. Nobody expected God to show up in humble circumstances. And, but he does. And so the first thing I would say for us as we walk into Advent together, as we call our attention to those deep longings, those deep yearnings, God, I want more of you in my life. I want to experience your presence and power in a real way. I want to sense that you're with me. I want to be able to hear your voice. I want to be able to see your fingerprints in my life and in my family and in my neighborhood and in this world. I want to experience and receive your healing and your empowerment and your cleansing and and, and the gift of your spirit, all of those longings, all of those yearnings are God-given. He invites us to wait for him, to long for him, to hope for him. But then he reminds us that when he shows up, he's almost always gonna do it in a way we don't expect. 
And it's almost always going to be in a much more ordinary or humble or easy to miss, easy to ignore sort of way. He may show up simply in the form of another person that wants to be with you and love you well. May show, show up in all the simple forms of the good world and the good life that he's created. A good meal, family, music, beauty, art. And the reality is, when he shows up, he doesn't always solve all our problems or fix all of our issues, but somehow he shows up in them. And that the longings and the hunger and the thirst themselves are actually the way that God would choose to come in to our world. So the first charge as we get head into Advent is to pay attention. Pay attention. We don't want to make the same mistakes that those who missed him the first time around made. We don't want to allow our expectations to get in the way of us experiencing the very life of God that he's come to give us. And so, in Jesus, first thing, we find a God who is self-limiting, who's humble, who shows up in lowly and unexpected places and circumstances, and that is good news. Now, let's turn that around a little bit and say, if that's the life that Jesus has lived and the God that his incarnation reveals, then as followers of Jesus, what would it look like for us to live in to that truth? How would our lives and our passions and our priorities and relationships be informed or even transformed by this picture of a self-limiting God? If this is the God that's shown himself to us in Christ and Christ is the one whom we are being discipled by and following and being taught and being saved, then how does this change our discipleship and our worship and our relationships? I want to borrow from the world of sociology. Several years ago, a guy named Peter Sang wrote a book called The Fifth Practice. And it has to do with understanding your life and understanding the world, not simply as a linear line, but as a system. That each of our individual lives, our home, our organizations that we work in and participate in, even the political structures, geopolitical structures of the world, all of these are complex systems. And if we want to see change and transformation, either in, just in our personal lives or in major scale ways across the world, it has to do with understanding the various components that make up the system. Okay? And so he uses the term human flourishing to describe the end goal through the lens of a common good perspective. That what is it that we want for ourselves and other people? We could reduce it and say the word happy, that we just want to be happy. But uh, I like the idea that human flourishing has to do with more than simply emotional well-being, but it actually has to do with the holistic repair of, <clears throat> of the broken relationships of humanity. And so uh, Sang's theory is that there's these three necessary ingredients when it comes to experiencing human flourishing. The first is meaning, the second is community, and the third is freedom. 
And so in order for a human to actually thrive and flourish, the idea is that they would need to be experiencing all three of these things to a significant degree. And so when we talk about meaning, we talk about my life has a sense of purpose. My life has value, that I'm here for a reason, that my life matters and I've got something to live for. If you've read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning as he does this intense study of those that survived the most brutal circumstances in Nazi concentration camps, he realizes that the ones that are most likely to survive the longest aren't the necessarily the physically most healthy or the most educated or the most intellectual or the physically strongest, but it's those who had the greatest sense of meaning in their lives, a reason to live, that they were able to endure hellish circumstances. And so we have to have meaning. Secondly, we have to have community. We have to exist in relationships. We have to know and be known by others. We have to love and be loved by others. We need to know that we're not alone in this world. We need various levels of relationship. And he talks about several concentric circles from very intimate personal relationships all the way out to public societal relationships that make the various dimensions of community uh, in our lives and how each one of those is important. And then finally, he says that we have to have freedom. In, in, in addition to having this sense of connection and community, we also have to have this sense of autonomy. We need to be able to choose. We need to be able to think for ourselves. We need to be able to exert our own will to a certain degree in order to flourish. <clears throat> and so this is expressed through the freedom of choice, the freedom of expression. And so uh, he takes these three uh, ingredients and he imagines them, as, imagines them as tanks in your car, so to speak, right? Your gas tank, your oil tank, uh, your transmission fluid tank, and saying in order for your car to run well, each of those tanks needs to be filled with the right thing and it needs to have enough. And when all three of those tanks are filled, then uh, that's what you have. Uh, that's when you have human flourishing. Now, the problem is um, there are many people throughout history and around the world today that are experiencing an extreme deficit in one or more of those tanks, right? So when you think about those that are under really uh, strict, go back to the other one first, really strict um, dictatorships, right? And they literally don't have the freedom to choose, of how they're gonna live and where, what they're gonna do and if they can even leave or not leave, right? So when your freedom tank is empty, then your flourishing as a human is vastly uh, diminished, okay? There are those that have an empty community tank where either by choice or by circumstance, we find ourselves in complete isolation, feeling like nobody knows us, nobody loves us, that we don't belong to anything bigger than ourselves. And then there are those that experience a significant deficit in meaning, that life has no purpose, nothing matters. And in any of those cases, flourishing is, is going to be greatly paralyzed. Now, if we were to talk about our cultural uh, situation here as 2018 West Coast, United States, um, kind of stereotypical of a larger Western culture, 
And if you were to take a measure, if you could, of each of our three tanks, what do you think you would find? Unfortunately, they're probably not all topped off. Sang's theory is this. Next slide. That our meaning tank is almost bone dry. Our community tank is much lower than it should be while our freedom tank is overflowing in excess. That's a really interesting claim to make on his part, that the reason humans in our culture aren't experiencing deep flourishing and happiness is because we have too much freedom. It doesn't sound very American, does it? But think about all the options we have. Think about all the choices that we have to make on a daily basis. Think about the million different kinds of things when it comes to our identity in this system as consumers. When you show up at the grocery store and there's 37 different kinds of ketchup, right? You would think, oh, that's awesome. I have unlimited choices here. And instead, it's like, I, how do you know? Which is the best one? What if I choose the wrong one? What if this one isn't, you know, fair trade, organic, and people are going to judge me, and that sort of thing? Um, think about Amazon, right? As you're starting to shop, you're like literally anything, anywhere in the world can be on your doorstep in two days, more and more researchers are beginning to uncover this choice anxiety within Western consumers. That the overwhelming amount of options we have, rather than leading to flourishing, is leading to an incredible increased rate of anxiety. We have so much freedom particularly as <clears throat> for those of us that are white Americans, where we want to travel in the world, what we want to do with our lives, what we want to do for leisure, what we want to do with our weekends, which group or community or subculture we want to be part of, um, even more and more when it comes to the conversations related to sexuality, uh, we have freedom to define our own orientation, our own gender, our own relationships, all that kind of stuff. And all I'm saying is that this is the movement of the, of the society towards complete, uninhibited freedom. And the reality is that this canary in the coal mine is this thing called anxiety. This cultural exhaustion this overwhelming sense that there are so many choices, so many options, so many pathways that I'm scared to death, I'm nervous, I'm paralyzed, and can't move forward. And so here's the theory, if you go back to the tanks, that if we are going to experience human flourishing... The only way that our meaning and community tanks can be filled is by self-limiting our freedom. And I'm not talking about a top-down dictator limiting our freedom. I'm saying us, as free agents, exercising 
this incredible gift of saying, I'm going to allow my other tanks to be filled through limiting my freedoms. What does self-limitation look like? Well, we've already seen a picture of that in Jesus. He lowers himself, empties himself, demotes himself, limits himself. And then he calls us to be his disciples. So self-limitation looks like sacrifice. It looks like commitment. It looks like generosity. It looks like giving up our freedom, our freedom of time, our freedom of finances, our freedom of comfort and familiarity for the sake of being open to experiencing true meaning and community and flourishing. So think about it like this. Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for his soul? You see what he's saying? He's going, you've got it all wrong if you think overflowing freedom is the secret to happiness. The only way to truly be happy, the path to abundant life flows through self-limitation, self-denial, laying down of your rights, of your comfort, of your gifts, of your possessions, of your finances for the sake of others. And the promise is that if we deny our freedoms, I think what Jesus is saying is that the meaning and the community that we find through it is this thing that he calls abundant life. Life with him. Life as a true human being. The way that he's called us to. And so what does this look like? Back to Philippians 2. Verses 2 and 3, he says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This whole beautiful theological treatise that Paul does here in this chunk is addressed to a certain community of Christ followers living in a certain place at a certain time together. So he's not just saying in general this is how people should act. He's saying have this kind of culture and community amongst your fellowship. If he were here today and speaking these words, he would say Antioch, the way you treat each other, the way you relate to one another, the way you share life with the other people in this room, have the same mindset of Christ. What sacrifices are you willing to make? What commitments that are you willing to make that would limit your freedom but increase your sense of meaning 
and community? What does generosity look like? Commitment of time, energy, resources, self-limiting our freedom as an act of faith, trusting that eternal life and abundant life is only found through following a self-limiting God. Uh, I didn't know Rick was going to share that uh, quote from C.S. Lewis earlier. You already forgot it, so I'm going to share it again. I may have been able to fool you. (laughs) But I want us to hear it now through the lens of generosity as an act of self-limitation. That's what we see in God and now what God calls us to. So I don't believe that we can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not pinch or hamper us, I should say that they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. So we don't need to reduce this whole conversation to simply a conversation about money and giving and tithing, but you start to see that this is one of the most clear and immediate applications of this. That where would we limit ourselves? Where would we make commitments to the kingdom? Where would we express sacrificial, joyful, faithful generosity, not just out of the margin or the excess of our budget, but in a way that truly, like Christ, is self-limiting, that lays down our freedoms for the sake of our flourishing and the flourishing of our church, our city, and the world. So you may come in this morning. Oh, man, I got to stop talking because I'm going to cough a whole lot, which you guys are good with, the stopping part. But, um, oh, my gosh. We talked a lot about money this morning. And some of you, that's like, oh, yeah, that's what churches do. They're all just about your money or something like that. And Jesus talks about money all the time, not because he wants our money, because it's the surest way to indicate where our heart is. 